I want to begin this morning by uh, apologizing for that video. I was forced to do it. But uh, at first service, I was sitting right there next to my sweet, sweet, sweet Chandler, my daughter. And after it was over, she looked up at me and she said, that was a fail. <laughs> so, so she's here too, and she's still grounded, like I told you after first service. <laughs> it is going to be an awesome day next Sunday, and I really do hope, as Keith said, I hope that you'll make sure that you're here. Bring your family. It's going to be a wonderful day for us all to be together. If you've never been in that room, the, the worship and the singing and the music, it's going to be beautiful. It's going to be an unbelievable time, so we do pray that you will uh, come and join and be a part of this special day next, next Sunday. It was 400 years of total, complete brutality, enslaved, beaten, some murdered, tortured, suffered, painful. It was a difficult time in the life of the Israelite nation. 400 years at the mercy of the Egyptians. How many times did parents and grandparents and great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents wonder how long, how many more generations would have to suffer? And how many times was the question uttered, where is God? Why would God allow us, his chosen ones, to endure all that we are? And one day, Moses and his brother Aaron were walking along and they saw a bush a burning bush. It was on fire. And as they approached, a voice came and said, take your shoes off. This is holy ground. And so they did. They brought back word from that voice that I have heard your cries and I will save you. Hundreds of years, generations after generations, are going to be saved. What do you do when you come to a moment in your life and you experience the voice of God? I mean, you hear Him. What do you do when you come in contact with God in that real of a way? In Exodus chapter 4, verse 29, it says this, Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites, and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people, and they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, had heard their cries, they immediately bowed down and worshiped him. He had spent 40 days on Mount Sinai. He had heard God speak yet again. 
He had gone up to retrieve these two large pieces of stone with five commandments each on them. It was the great Ten Commandments that had come straight from God Almighty. And then Moses stopped and heard the voice. And the voice said, Moses, I want you to go right here, and I want you to stand on this rock in this little cleft area right here. I want you to understand that I'm going to come by you, but you can't see me. No man sees the face of God, but I'm going to come so close to you that you'll see my back. And so he did. Have you ever felt the presence of God? I mean, like he was right there. That you could just reach out and touch him. That you could see his back. How do we react? What do we do? In Exodus chapter 34, it says that Moses bowed down on the ground and at once worshiped God. It was one of the worst days in the life of the great King David, the great ruler, the chosen young man, handsome, charming, smart, strong, faithful, athletic. David was the man. And yet in one afternoon, he broke five of the commandments of God. He was a liar. He was an adulterer. He was a cheater. He turned his back and rejected God. The great one had a life that was totally out of control. David's life was a mess. He prayed and begged and pleaded with God for the life of his child for seven days. But the illegitimate child was not to live. We read so many things that David wrote, but when you read what he wrote, you understand a one concept that during David's life, there were more than one or two moments that he truly felt like his life was over. That everything that he had done, every way that he had lived, every great moment of conquering, it was done. He was a man who led nations. Thousands of men in the military did everything he told them to do in every breath he took. He had total control and then gave it all away. So what do you do when your life's a mess? What do you do when you've really screwed up? What do you do when you find yourself where the great King David found himself? 
In 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 20, it says this, Then David got up from the ground. After he had washed, he put on lotions, he changed his clothes, he went, and he worshipped God. The great King Solomon, he was tasked with building the greatest temple the world had ever known, and that's exactly what he did. Thousands and thousands of men Tens of thousands of hours of manual labor, cutting and building and carrying and working, gold upon gold to build the most magnificent structure the world had ever known. And it was an amazing thing. And the great wise King Solomon was living amidst the greatest moments of his life. The glory of God came down and descended upon this temple in a cloud. God was there. The moment was right. King Solomon had done everything that he had been asked to do. This was the pinnacle. Have things in your life ever just felt really good? Like you were really in line with God, that you understood his will, that your life was in a good place. How do we respond? What do we do? In 1 Kings chapter 8, it says, At that moment, King Solomon bowed down, lifted his hands up, and he worshiped God. Jesus knew the Sea of Galilee was an often stormy body of water. The hills and the terrain made for uh, frequent storms that would come in and rock the water, create waves and difficulty for the fishermen out on the lake. Jesus had gone to sit and rest and pray. He watched the storm roll in. He saw his disciples in the boat over there. He decided he wanted to go be with them. He walked down to the edge of the water. And then, you know, he walked out onto the water. The disciples didn't quite know what to do. They saw a ghostly figure coming before them. Uncertainty and fear came over them. What do you do when you come face to face with your Savior? I don't mean physically like the disciples, but I mean one of those moments in your life when you feel like you are right there face-to-face with the Savior. In Matthew chapter 14, verse 33, it says that everyone in the boat knelt down and worshipped him. I hope you hear a theme. There's a trend through some of these stories. Hundreds and hundreds of years separated the lives of these men The circumstances were different. The situations were different. The individuals were different. The times were different. The culture was different. Society was different. Everything was different except one thing. They had nothing else to do but worship God. What is worship? When is worship? How is worship? What is worship? Why is worship? We've had worship battles and worship questions for as long as I can remember. 
And yet I'm not so sure we fully grasp what worship really and truly is. We were made to worship. Our purpose is to worship, to worship in all that we do, no matter where we are, what we are doing. We were created by a creator to worship the creator. I think it's a really significant question what worship is. We often call this worship, this right here, this time, this place, this moment. We often refer to this as worship. And yes, this is worship. This is wonderful worship. But I'm not so sure we're supposed to build walls around this moment, this time, this hour right here. There's a whole lot more to worship than just this. The reason why I think it's such a very important question is simply this. What we come to understand about this moment right here, this hour or so right here, dictates how we view the other 167 hours of our life from the moment you leave here to the moment you come back. Because if you're convinced that this is worship and only worship, then the other 167 hours of your life are not viewed as worship. And you live those 167 hours of your life to come to this moment to try to do it right. To be in line, in accordance, correct, understood, proper. Because you're practicing the 167 hours for this one moment. You want to know why I think we have so many issues when it comes to worship? We struggle with whether this worship is right or that worship is right. This is wrong. This is too much. This is too little. This is too traditional. This is too contemporary. This is too modern. This is not enough. It's because I think we've put all our worship eggs into one basket. And that means everything that we've done in life is going to come to this moment right here. And if we don't get it right, we failed God. Here's the thing. You want to know why there's so much pressure on the Dallas Cowboys to win on Sunday afternoons? There's an enormous amount of pressure for those men to perform and win and be successful on Sunday afternoons. You want to know why? Because the other 165 hours of their, of their week are dedicated. Listening, watching, hearing, reading, understanding, passing, throwing, kicking, running, so that when they get to that three-hour moment under a microscope, they implement perfection. They become victorious, successful over an opponent. And they're viewed as successful or failure based on what they do as performance. Church, that's not what the 167 hours of our life is supposed to be. It's not a practice for this moment. What you do for the other 167 hours of your life is not a practice for this one hour. Your entire life is supposed to be worship. And I believe if you look at worship in any other way, you are misinterpreting what God has created us to be. He made us for one reason and one reason only, and that was to love him and worship him. That's it. Family, faith, community, kingdom, all those other things 
come into play. But the reality of it is, if you don't grasp that your creator made you as his creation to worship him, to give it back to him, then I think you've missed it. I love the words in the 145th Psalm that we've read this morning. I think they're beautiful for a number of reasons. I, I think there's emotion and there's, there's, there's uh, passion, there's enthusiasm, there's love, there's joy, there's excitement. But I love the psalm because I think it is the window into God's heart through the eyes of man. I think the words beautifully create an image and an understanding of what God desires of his creation. What you read, what we read together was one man's view of God's heart and what it was calling him to do, which was to encounter God in worship. You see, all the stories that we read in this book, all the different things that you can come and understand the details of and the historical relevance and the individuals, men and women, and and all the things that you want, here's the one thing if you don't recognize this. Time after time after time, you read they worshiped God. And very rarely did it ever happen in a building or in a classroom or in an organized, structured, small group. Please hear me saying, nothing wrong with all those things. They're wonderful. But it happened in the middle of life when God, as the creator, encountered us as his creation. We experience God. Because when you experience God fully within all his glory, when you come face to face and you encounter God, the only real choice you have is to bow down on your knees and worship him. That's the only choice you have. And if you are missing out on the encounter of God, the experience of coming face to face with God, you are missing out on the greatest worship that human beings can have. Psalm 145. It's worship. I want to leave you with just a couple thoughts this morning. The first one is this. True worship is not an activity. It's an encounter. It's an experience with God. True worship is an encounter with God. It's not about sacrificing a lamb on an altar. Yes, they did that. And yes, God he requested that. It's a part of worship. It's not about coming and sitting in a pew. It's not about taking up an offering. It's not about doing communion. It's not about teaching. It's not about preaching. It's not about singing. All those are elements of worship. They're all great. They're all good. Please don't hear me saying anything other than that. But if you come to believe that that's what worship is, you are missing the encounter with God. Do not come to a point in your life where you come to believe that that is what worship is, doing all those things. The second is this, true worship centers our attention, not on ourself, but on God. True worship has nothing to do with us, 
It has everything to do with God. Psalm 145 was for God, about God, because of God, to God. That's what that worship was about. Nowhere did the individual ever come into play. And here's my struggle. My struggle is that we get so caught up in trying to see if the 167 hours that we were doing life and practicing coming to this point, that we do it right. That we've checked off all the things that we're supposed to do. That we've gotten so focused on us. Because we say we come in here and want to do worship before God, but really we want to do worship that we like. That's good for us. That's traditional enough, or it's contemporary enough, or it's this enough, or it's that enough. And here's the reality. The worship is about God and nobody else. I confess to you this. I don't, I don't fully understand God, and I never will. But I don't believe I have to, because I don't believe that God has called us to be able to perfectly explain him. I believe he has called us to truly experience him. That's the difference. Do not spend your life trying to perfectly explain God, but rather seeking to truly experience God. So what is worship? Worship is our life. Worship is who we are. It is what we are. I believe it is what we were created to be. It is so much more than just this room in this moment. It is so much more than just this building. It is so much more than just this community. Our worship to God is wherever you go in your life. Every moment. The opportunity to encounter as a creation, your creator. And when you experience that, it is worship. Men and women, I challenge you to worship when you go to work. Moms and dads, I challenge you to worship when you raise your kids. Grandparents, I challenge you to worship as you humbly set an example and lead those around you. Teachers, I challenge you to worship when you teach young and old. Elders, I challenge you to worship as you lead and shepherd the flock here at Greenville Oaks. And ministers, I challenge us to worship as we stand publicly before people and lead and as we sit quietly out of sight in our office. May everything we do be a worship to God because as we read in Psalm 145.3, God is great and he is worthy of all of our praise. Worship is our life.